Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya uh, Namaskaram. Um, today, much like last time, I'll start by answering one or two questions that I've received. Um, and then it, uh, any questions that anyone wants to ask, they're welcome to ask. And um, I will continue answering as long as I uh, as long as I feel um, uh, I have the energy to do so. Um, the first question was uh, I'm going to address today. This is a question I was sent yesterday, yesterday evening. Um, uh, uh, Katie wrote, um, this morning I was chatting with some friends on Messenger about a post someone sent in uh, to our online group. The post was titled, The Near-Death Experience of Ramana Maharshi. This person then went on to describe Ramana Maharshi's near-death experience and how they had been, how they had had even written a book on the subject of Ramana Maharshi's near-death experience when he was 16. The title of their book was The Near-Death Experience of Ramana Maharshi. They then spoke about how Ramana Maharshi went on to become a new person from this new uh, near-death experience as the self-realized sage we all know today. I have always understood that it was a total death experience that he had at 16 and that no one, no person at all came back. No mental tendencies, vasana survived. Only the pure self remained. I have never seen it as a near-death experience, and so perhaps this person's book title is possibly misleading, question mark. Uh, however, I do remember Sri Ramana Maharshi having a second death experience in 1912 while walking with Parani Swami and Vasudeva Sastri from Virupaksha Cave uh, for Pachaman Coil. Arthur Osborne described this second death experience as final and complete. This whole discussion has made me wonder if his first death experience was not total and complete, as I had first thought. How could it be if he then went on to have a second total and uh, complete one as described by Arthur Osborne? So that is the question. Um, firstly, to talk about what happened to Bhagavan in, um, on that day in Madurai when he was in July um, 1896 as a near-death experience shows a complete misunderstanding of what, what actually happened. A, a near-death experience is um, people have near-death experiences at, under various circumstances. It may be when they have a cardiac arrest or if they're in hospital and I mean, I mean if they're in an accident or in various circumstances when the person is when the body actually dies for a, a brief period and is then resuscitated, people often report what they experienced at that time. Various different types of experience people have. For example, sometimes uh, a person may be on an operating table and their, their heart stops beating while they're on the operating table. Later, when they report it, they report it as if they're floating up near the ceiling, looking down on the body, looking at the doctors trying to resuscitate them. 
And they can even sometimes report what was being said, or sometimes they can report what was being said in another, in another room in the hospital at the same time. So, so many different types of experiences people have. And these are a matter of great curiosity, particularly for, um, for people who are of a more, um, more materialistic background, who find it difficult to explain how when the body is supposing, supposedly dead, how can such experiences occur? This is what a near-death experience is. In other words, it is an experience of phenomena. What Bhagavan experienced was something completely different. Bhagavan's experience was not of any phenomena. That is, in, in the light of Bhagavan's experience, we can explain near-death experiences very easily. According to Bhagavan, our present waking state is just another dream. So when the body is on the brink of uh, death, uh, but like sometimes, for example, when we are falling asleep, um, we, we may be very tired at the end of the day and trying to keep awake for some reason or other, and we sort of we, we find ourselves suspended between um, the waking state and a, a dream state. It's not that, that is, we're partly aware of what the so-called waking state, and we're partly aware of a, a dream state. So we seem to be sort of suspended between the two. It's something. It's a bit like that. Basically, a near-death experience, like any experience of phenomena, is just a dream. So it is, from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, there's no wonder at all in near-death experiences, but they are experiences of, of phenomena. Who is it who experiences phenomena? Phenomena appear only in the view of ego. So any type of experience of anything other than ourself the experiencer of that is ego. This is why in, in sleep, we have no experience of anything. We have no memories. We have no um, awareness of the body, awareness of the world. We, have, we are not aware of anything other than our own existence, I am. Why? Because ego is absent there. It is only in the view of ego that all other things appear. This is what Bhagavan teaches us in verse 20. Six of Uludanapadu. In fact, he teaches in so many ways, in so many places. There's, but he, he puts it particularly succinctly and clearly in verse 26 of Uludanapadu. He says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Those are the first two sentences. Why does Bhagavan say that? For the simple reason that everything appears only in the view of ego. Without ego, there cannot be experience of anything other than ourself. Uh, so, and then he goes on to say, ego itself is everything. That is what he means by that is, just like in a dream, the dreamer, what the dreamer is seeing is nothing but itself. It is seeing itself as the dream. That is, the dreamer is, is ego or mind, and it's seeing itself as that dream world. That dream world has no existence independent of the dreamer. Uh, likewise, all that we experience has no existence independent of ego. It is, it is our semi-existence as ego, but lends a semi-existence to all other things, because all other things appear only in the view of ego. 
That's why Bhagavan says ego itself is everything. That is, ego is seeing itself as all these other things. And then he concludes that verse 26 by saying, therefore, know that investigating what this is, is giving up everything. Investigating what this is means investigating what this ego is. Why is that giving up everything? Because, as he explained in the previous verse, the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by grasping things other than itself, but to subside and, and uh, disappear, to take flight, as he says, if it investigates itself. So, so long as our attention is on anything other than ourself, we seem to be ego. When we turn our attention back towards ourself to see who am I, this ego dissolves and disappears. So we can we can never actually catch this ego because we ego we, we seem to be ego only when we're attending to other things. When we attend to ourselves, ego simply vanishes. So if since ego ceases to exist if we attend if we investigate it clearly enough investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything, because everything exists only in the view of ego. When ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So if we understand these basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings, we won't get into this sort of confusion, imagining that what Bhagavan experienced was a near-death experience. As I say, a near-death experience like any dream, is just a phenomenal experience. It, it's an experience of phenomena, of objects. Though the, um, we, sometimes we talk about jnana nubhava, the experience of jnana, it is an experience quite unlike any other experience, because in any normal experience, there are three factors. There's the, the experiencer, the thing that is experienced and the means of experiencing it. For example, I see a, um, I see a, 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 a PC screen in front of me, um, in which I, uh, I, I copied and pasted this question. So, what I'm seeing in front of me, the computer screen with some words written on it, is the object seen. The, the, the means by which I know or experience that is seeing. And I, who see it, am the seer, am the experiencer. So in all, all objective experiences have these three factors, the, the knower, the means of knowing, and the object known. Obviously, nothing can be known without a means of knowing it. So the, the, but what is known depends upon the knowing, the means by which it is known. And there cannot either be a means of knowing or any object known without a knower of it. So both the, both the object and the, the knowing of that object both depend upon the knower. This is why Bhagavan says in verse 9 of Uladunapadu, he refers to these three as uh, mupadi. Mupadi is a, a Tamil equivalent of the Sanskrit word triputi, which refers to these three, the knower, the means of knowing, and the object known. Um, so Bhagavan says these, 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 this, all these three depend upon one thing. What is the one thing they depend upon? They depend upon ego, the knower. Um, and then he says, um, 
if one investigates in within the mind what that one thing is because this is a very this verse nine is a very 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 nice verse um that is, he doesn't only talk about these uh, these triads, that is, this triputi. He also talks about dyads. Dyads here means pairs of opposites, such as uh, existence and non-existence, life and death, awareness and non-awareness, knowledge and ignorance, happiness and unhappiness, all these pairs of opposites. So he says, dyads and triads always exist holding one thing. That one thing is ego, because the pairs of opposites exist only in the view of ego. And though ego is one of the three members of the triad, it's the basic one, because the others cannot exist without it. You cannot have any means of knowing without a knower. You cannot have anything known without a knower. So the one thing he refers to here is ego. Uh, and then he says, if one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. They will slip off means the dives and triads will slip off. Why will they slip off? Because they depend upon ego. If we if we see within the mind what that one thing is, that, that is, in other words, if we turn our attention within to see who am I, this ego will subside and disappear. And uh, since it subsides and disappears, the dives and triads also subside and disappear. Um, and then he says, he concludes, or then he says, only those who have seen have seen the reality. That implies only those who have seen this disappearance of ego, along with everything known by it, are those who have seen the reality. They will not be confused. Uh, because the, the very nature of ego is to be confused. Because as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body. Ego is the subject, but the subject always takes itself to be an object because the body that we take ourselves to be is an object experienced by us. So confusion is the very nature of ego. Therefore, Bhagavan says, they will, therefore, they, uh, they will not be confused. In other words, that, that fundamental confusion, that chitjada granti, that conflation of the basic awareness I am, which is Satchit, and uh, this body, which is a mere form, uh, and therefore jada, this conflation will be removed. This conflation, this conflated awareness, I am this body, that is the, the fundamental confusion. When that is removed, there will be no confusion. So normal experience ex uh, consists of these three, the experiencer, the means of experiencing, and the thing that is experienced, whereas what Bhagavan experienced, the reality that Bhagavan experienced, is non-dual. That is, there are no, there are no two things there. It, it's not one eye knowing another eye. It is, he knew himself as that basic reality I am. So it's not one thing knowing another thing. So though it is... Uh, loosely described as an experience, it's not an experience in which there's an experiencer, a means of experiencing, and an object experience. All three are one. That is, I am is, is what is experiencing. I am is the means by which it's experiencing, because I am is awareness. Uh, and uh, I am is what is experienced. So it's a totally non-dual experience. So what Bhagavan experienced on that day in Madurai is totally different to a near-death experience in which because in a near-death experience there's 
an ego who's experiencing it, and there's whatever is experienced and whatever is the means of experiencing it. So that this person who 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 describes what happened to Bhagavan on that day as a near-death experience has very clearly not understood at all what um what actually happened. Uh and um Katie also wrote, they, they then spoke about how Ramana Maharshi went on to become a new person after this near-death experience, as a self-realized sage we all know today. That is, in our view, Bhagavan may seem to be a, new, a, new, a different person, a new person after this experience. But in his view, he's not a person at all. That is, what, what happened on that day, Bhagavan, when that fear of death came to Bhagavan, he turned his attention within so keenly that he thereby merged back in the source. And what remained was that pure awareness I am. In other words, ego was completely eradicated. And what remained shining was the pure awareness I am. That pure awareness I am is not, can never be an object of experience. What knows the pure awareness I am is only the pure awareness I am. Um, there's a, one among the many uh, poems and songs Sadhuam wrote is one called Arunachala, Arunachala Vemba that consists of a hundred verses in which um, it's a praise of Bhagavan and his teachings and Aranach and everything, but it also contains a lot of Bhagavan's teachings there. There's one verse there, it begins, um, I can't remember the rest of the verse in Tamil, but uh, Sadhuam translated it into a verse in English. The, the, his English version of that verse is, a naked lie then it would be, if any man were to say that he realized the self diving within through proper inquiry set in, not for knowing but for death, this good for nothing ego's worth. Tis Aranachala alone, the self by which the self is known. That is, we are never going to know our own reality. We lose ourselves in our reality, and our reality alone knows our reality. Our reality means what we actually are, our real nature. So our real nature is pure awareness. Pure awareness can never be an object of awareness. What knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. This is why Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. That means jnana alone is the jnani. There, there are not two things there. A person who is having jnana, no, it is jnana alone that knows jnana. Jnana in this context means pure awareness. So though Bhagavan uh, may seem to have been transformed by that experience, that is the, what we call, what we refer to as Bhagavan or Ramana Maharshi, is the person who he seems to be in our view. Yes, there was a, a, a tremendous transformation, but that's only in our view, because Bhagavan often used to say, the body and mind of Vijnani, in other words, the person whom we take to be Vijnani, exists only in the view of the Ajnani. Vijnani itself is nothing but jnana, nothing but pure awareness. So when ego is er eradicated, what remains is only pure awareness. So uh, Katie is correct in saying that it's... Uh, 
to say, but um, she went on to say, I've always understood that it was a total death experience he had at 16, and that no one, no person at all came back. Yes, absolutely true. When ego is annihilated, that is the end. And she's also right in saying a total death experience, because what happened on that day is not just death of the body, it was death of ego. That is the real death, because the death of the body is just the ending of one dream. So long as the dreamer remains, one dream will be followed by another dream, by another dream. That is, so long as there's a dreamer, it will continue dreaming one dream after another. So what we call death of the body is nothing but the ending of a dream. Whereas the death that, uh, that occurred on that day was the death of ego. Once ego is eradicated, everything is eradicated along with it. So it was total death experience. Um, uh, and then she goes on to write, no mental tendencies vasana survived. Yes, correct. Because how can there be any tendencies or or mind or anything? But the vasanas or are only belong to ego. It's ego's vasanas, ego's inclinations to experience this or that. In the absence of ego, there can be no vasanas, and in in the absence of ego, there can be nothing else because everything else appears only in the view of ego. When ego is eradicated, everything is eradicated, and only the pure self remains. Yes, that's that's the truth. That was that was Bhagavan's experience. Um, but it's, so it's only in our view that he seemed to be a transformed person. Um, and then she goes on to say, I have never seen it uh, described as a near-death experience. So perhaps this person's book title is possibly misleading. Yes, it's absolutely misleading. I mean, they even, people write books without understanding what they're writing about. I mean, first people should, we cannot, we cannot even begin to understand Bhagavan without understanding his teachings. And even when we understand his teachings, our understanding of him is still very superficial. If we want to truly understand Bhagavan, we need to be Bhagavan. In other words, we need to lose ourselves. We need to surrender ourselves completely. We need to be swallowed by him. As he says in verse 20 of Uladunapdu, Unadal Khan, becoming food is seeing. Only when we are totally uh, um, consumed by him, and he alone remains. Then only do we really know him. We know him by being him. This is what Sadwam meant in that verse of Aranatra Bemba. Not for knowing, but for death, this good for nothing ego's worth. Tis Aranatra alone, the self by which the self is known. So it is, it, it, it is we, we are never going to realize the self. We, we lose ourselves in our own real nature, and our real nature remains as it always is, knowing itself as it always does. Um, then uh, Katie goes on to uh, refer to another incident. However, I do remember Sri Ramana Maharshi having a second death experience in 1912, whilst walking with Parani Swami and Vasudeva Sastri from Virupakshi for Pachaman Coil. Actually, it was the other way around. They had they had gone to Patcham and Coyle. Um, uh, it was, I think, a hot summer's day. They'd gone to Patcham and Coyle to, to bathe in the tank there, and they'd had an oil bath. And it was while returning to Bupakshi Cave when they came near Amai Parai, 
which is often, Amai means uh, tortoise, Parai means rock. So it's in English, it's often referred to as tortoise rock. When they came there, Bhagavan's body died. But uh, 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 there's more to it than that. That this is what is, this was first recorded in self-realization by Bibi Narasimha Swami. Um, what, what actually happened, that is, well, okay, I'll, I'll go back to the previous the the what happened in Madurai on that day when um when Bhagavan got that fear of death and he turned within. The real uh, nature of what happened on that day was ego was completely annihilated. However, from from our perspective, from the perspective of if anyone had been in that room. No, no one was there, but if anyone had been in that room, they would have seen Bhagavan's body becoming totally lifeless. For about 20 minutes, Bhagavan's body was, in, in some books it's recorded, but Bhagavan enacted death. He didn't enact death. The body actually died. There's a reason for that, and he makes that reason clear in verses uh, uh, 28 and uh, the Kalivemba version of verse 29 of Uludunapadu. What he says in verse 28, he describes what is the what is the practice of going deep deep in the path in this practice of self-investigation. He says, um, uh, like sinking, uh, wanting to find something that has fallen in water, sinking within restraining speech and breath by a sharpened mind it is necessary to know the place where the rising ego rises uh, no um the, the analogy he gives here is like sinking wanting to see something that is uh, uh or to find something that has fallen in water if so, something has fallen in the bottom of a well and you want to retrieve it you have to sink deep in the well you need to go down to the bottom like the the pearl diver analogy but he gives in nana it's similar uh if you want to find uh if you want to if a pearl diver wants to retrieve the pearls but are lying in the oysters at the bottom of the ocean, they need to sink deep into the water, go down to the very bottom in order to get those pearls. So uh, that, that's an analogy. And he then says, sinking within, Ulandu, uh, restraining speech and breath by a sharpened mind. By a sharpened mind, the words in Tamil are kunda matial. Kunda means very, um, literally means, uh, Core means sharp, Konda means sharpened. It's a very keenly focused mind, it implies. In other words, a keenly focused power of attention. So we how are we to sink within? By a keenly focused power of attention. How are we to restrain the breath? By a keenly uh, focused power of attention. How are we to restrain the, the, the speech? But the same. So speech and breath are restrained by the same keenly focused mind by which we sink within. So when he says a sharpened mind, it implies a focused mind. Focused on what? What are we seeking to know? He says it is necessary to know the place where the rising ego rises. So it's obviously only to know that place, we need to focus our attention on it. Here he uses the word place, obviously, in a metaphorical sense. The place here means the source. What is the source from which ego rises? That is, in the absence of ego, what remains? 
in the absence of ego, what remains is only our own being, our own reality, our atmasarupa. That is what remains in sleep. In sleep, we're not aware of anything other than our own being, I am. When we, in, in waking or dream, we, we rise again as ego. So from where is this ego rising? It's rising only from I am, from our own being. So knowing the place where the rising ego rises means knowing that fundamental awareness I am, which is the, under, which is the source and substance of ego. And, and so when he talks about a kundamatyala, a keenly uh, a, a sharpened mind or a keenly focused mind, he means a mind that is keenly focused on its source, on I am. By keenly, uh, by keenly focusing our mind or attention on our being, on I am, we thereby sink within. That means the ego subsides. And to the extent that ego subsides, the breath and the speech and breath will automatically be restrained. So we shouldn't take it, but we have to uh, restrain the speech and breath as a separate action. No, it is by, by the same keenly focused self-attentiveness by which we sink within, we will also restrain the speech and breath. So to the extent to which we focus our attention on ourselves, Ego thereby subsides and the speech and breath are restrained. So, in the Kali Vemba version, he begins the next verse by saying, Pinnam pole tindu udalam. That means, Pinnam pole means like a corpse. Tindu means um, uh, uh, leaving or di discarding the body. Uh, like a udalam means body. So discarding the body like a corpse, these are these are not words in Uludu Napadu, but when Bhagavan joined all the 42 verses of Uludu Napadu together into a single Kali Vemba, he added words at the end, uh, some extra words at the end of each verse, but linked one verse to the next. So these these are the these additional words, these so this is the extended version of Uludu Napadu. And so the whole verse, including this, these, these words of this verse 29 is, leaving the body like a corpse, not saying I by mouth. That is, when, our, when, when we, our attention is so keenly focused on ourselves, we, we are thereby leaving the body like a corpse. Why? Because the breath and speech are subside. When the breath subsides, the body becomes lifeless, like a corpse not saying I by mouth. That is when we are sinking within so deep, there's no, there's no ego to rise to say I. Um, so, and when he says not saying I by mouth, it, it, it's the word he uses for by mouth is vial. Uh, vial can also mean by words. So it, it implies not only spoken words, but even mental words. We don't even mentally repeat I. Our attention is so keenly focused on ourselves, but even the, 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 the words or the thought I doesn't rise, that is the, the, the verbalized thought I doesn't rise. Investigating by an inward sinking mind where one rises as I alone is the path of knowledge. So this is the path of vichara or jnana, is uh, focusing our attention so keenly on the source from which we've risen, 
that the speech and breath are thereby uh, restrained, the body is discarded as a corpse because our attention is completely withdrawn from the body, the speech and breath, and, and breath uh, subs uh, completely cease, the body lies there as a corpse, and we go within so, so keenly. And then he goes on to say, instead, thinking I am not this body, I am that Brahman, is an aid, is it investigation? Uh, investigation means vicharya. I do vichara mama. So Bhagavan is saying what he means by vichara is not simply thinking, I am not this body, I'm not this mind, I am that Brahman. That is not vichara. That may be an aid. That that is we need to understand that we are not this body or mind. Um the, but we 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 are the, the, the fundamental awareness I am. That we need to understand. But simply thinking that is not the vichara. Vichara is nothing but turning our attention within so keenly to uh, focusing our entire attention on ourself, our being, the source from which we've risen as ego, and thereby subsiding within and uh, discarding the body as a corpse, that is, restraining the speech and breath and discarding the body as a corpse. This is the path of Vichara. So, this is what Bhagavan did on that day. His attention went within so keenly to find out who am I, but his speech and breath automatically ceased. The body became lifeless. It lay there lifeless for 20 minutes. Um, he also alludes to the same thing in Vichara Sangraham. In Vichara Sangraham, this is the text that is um, that uh, the answers that Bhagavan gave to Gambriam Satya. In, in in most English books, it's translated as self-inquiry, but uh, that's not actually the meaning. Vichara means investigation. Sangraham means um, a compilation, a compilation of, of, on on Vichara. In the first uh, subsection of the first section, he says using words that are sim very similar to those that he uses in verses 28 and 29 of Uludunapadu. Adalal pinnamana dehate pinnam polave irati vakalum nanendru solamal irindu ipodu nanendru vilangavadu eduvendru komeyai vicharital Apodu hridiyetil nanan indru saptamilamal tanukutane ovidaspuripu matram tondrum. What this means is, therefore, making the corpse bo body remain as a corpse, or making the corpse, the, the body which is a corpse, remain as a corpse. In other words, discarding the body as a corpse, leaving the body as a corpse. <clears throat> when the body dies, when we separate ourselves from it, we, well, or when we are separated from it, our connection with the body is completely cut. With that, we have no identification with the body at all. So long as the body is alive, <clears throat> we identify it as I. So when Bhagavan says, making the corpse body remain as a corpse, he means completely separating ourselves from the body by clinging to I. That is the implication. So <clears throat> the meaning is, therefore, making the corpse body remain as a corpse and being without uttering I, even by word, that the word he uses for word is vakalam, by, by word. That can also mean by speech. So it, can, it implies not only 
uh, saying I verbally, but also saying it mentally. So without uttering the word I, even by word or speech, <clears throat> if one keenly investigates what it is that now shines as I, then in one's heart a kind of spuripu. Spuripu is... Uh, Spuripu is the Tamil equivalent of a Sanskrit word sporana, which means a, a fresh clarity. So in one's heart, a, a Spuripu or clarity alone will appear itself to itself or oneself to oneself without sound as I am I. Uh, that is, as awareness of oneself as oneself alone. That's the implication. So here also, as in those verses of Uludnapadu, Bhagavan is talking about uh, not, not even uttering the word I by mouth, but focusing our attention so keenly on ourselves to find out what it is that now shines as I, we thereby leave the body as a corpse. So this is what happened on that day in Madurai. Bhagavan's attention was so keenly uh, focused on himself, so keenly turned within, but his speech and breath automatically subsided and the body lay there as a corpse. For 20 minutes, the body was actually lifeless. Then, because it was the destiny of that body to be the vehicle for uh, Bhagavan, to be the vehicle for the Sadguru, that body came back to life. By grace, it was brought back to life. And um, so that was the first, uh, when that, what happened later on Amaipari, on the tortoise rock, when that is referred to as the second death experience, that doesn't mean the ego died a second time. It means like the, like this, um, but what happened in Madurai, the body again became lifeless. So this is, um, when Bhiva Swami was writing Self-Realization, he came across this, he heard this story, and he would have asked the people who knew about it, and he wrote it, and he referred to it as the second death experience, because that was what most people believed. Self-realization was written in the early 1930s, it may have been published in 31 or 32. Um, a year or two later, um, uh, Sudananda Bharati wrote Ramana Vijayam, a Tamil biography of Bhagavan, but was largely based on um, self-realization. So he wrote the same thing there. And later, Krishna Bhikshu wrote a biography in Telugu. So everyone was, was most, most of the subsequent biographies were following what Bibi Narasimha Swami had written. So Bhagavan knew it was written like that in all these books, but it wasn't actually correct. It wasn't actually the second death experience. But Bhagavan didn't reveal this until the last one or two years of his bodily life. Um, in the last one or two years of Bhagavan's bodily life, he would occasionally refer to something that was mentioned in Self-Realization or Ramla Vijayam or, um, or Ramla Leela by uh, Krishna Bhikshu. And he would say, yes, it's written like that there, but it, that is not actually the case. What he said about this death experience, he said it wasn't actually the second death experience, it was the last death experience. That is, between the first time it happened that day in Madurai and the last time it happened in, on, on Amai Parai in 1912, uh, 16 years later, there were, on a number of occasions, Bhagavan's body became lifeless. Why this 
uh, why this Ame Parai incident was referred to as the second death experience is nobody had noticed it. Bhagavan knew about it, so Bhagavan said it happened a number of times um, in the intervening years, between the ages of 16 and 32, a number of times for no apparent reason his body would just become lifeless. And usually after about 15-20 minutes the life would come back to it. But when this is when these experiences are referred to as death experiences, this has relation only to the body. What happened in Madurai was that is what happened to the body in Madurai was a byproduct. What actually happened, a really significant thing that happened in Madurai was the death of ego, and that is final and complete. Um, so Katie goes on to say. Arthur Osborne describes this second death experience as final and complete. I don't know why he, yes, it is true in his, in, because Arthur Osborne, when he wrote Ramana Maharshi and the Path of Self-Knowledge, that was after, that was in the 1950s, I think he wrote that. Like all other biographers, he based it mainly on, um, on Bhima Narasimha Swami. So he believed that was the second death experience. And for some reason, he referred to it as final and complete. I don't know what idea he had. But as Katie rightly observed, what happened in Madurai, that was final and complete. Because when ego is annihilated, that is the end of the story. So um, it's only in our view that Bhagavan's body continued to live after that. And the Bhagavan appeared to be that body. Though in our view, Bhagavan seems to be that body, what is Bhagavan's fundamental teaching? I am not this body. That is what Bhagavan actually is, is the, is the source that he investigated. The, the, that is, the pure awareness I am is, is both the source and the substance of ego. It's the source of ego because it's that from which ego rises. It's the substance of ego because it is the reality of ego. That is, ego is the, is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. What is real in ego is only the pure awareness I am. What is unreal is the adjuncts. When these two are conflated together, this is called ego. So they, though ego is, as ego it is wholly non-existent, there is an element of reality in ego. That element of reality is the pure awareness I am. That is what is, that's what Bhagavan refers to as Atma Swarupa, the real nature of ourself. Um, so that the ego was annihilated on that day in Madurai. That was the end. Um, and, and there was no, all changes that were seen in Bhagavan after that were changes that existed only in our view, not in his view. Um, uh, then Katie goes on to say, this whole discussion made me wonder if his first death, if his first death was not total and complete as I had first thought. No, Katie, you were absolutely right. That was final. Um, how could it be if he then went on to have a second total and complete one? What happened on Amai Parai and all the intervening incidents where his body became lifeless was related only to the body. What happened in Madurai was death of the ego, and as a byproduct, the body was dead for 20 minutes or so. Um, so that, that's the main question I wanted to answer today. There's one other 
um, comment was posted on um, on one of my recent videos. I think my most recent video, a comment was posted yesterday, which is a little bit related to this. So I'll just answer this question also. That is, someone wrote, what kind of sadhana Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi must have done in his previous lives, but he achieved such a high state, completely absorbed in the bliss of the self in Virupakshi for many Virupaksha cave for many weeks. How can we make the mind purer? Well, firstly, um, regarding what Bhagavan must what what um what, what Bhagavan must have done in previous lives. Of course, he wasn't that is um Venkatara, let's say Venkataraman, the one who, uh, the ego that took itself to be I am Venkataraman, that ego in previous lives, what sadhana would it have done? It would have done exactly the same sadhana. Bhagavan once remarked uh, when uh, concerning what happened that day in Madurai, someone must have asked him, how, how, how you so effortlessly took to this path? Bhagavan said, Edo Vitukarai Totokarai Polam. That is, Vitukarai Totokarai is a very difficult term. It, it, we can't really translate it into English, but the idea of Vitukarai Totokarai, Vitukarai means something that has been left incomplete. Totokarai means the resumption of that. So, whatever spiritual practice he had been doing in previous lives was left incomplete. That was completed that day in Madurai. So what kind of sadhana would he have been doing? He would have been following this same path of self-investigation. But because it was the it was the divine will that this that body, this body of Venkataraman should be become the vehicle for the uh, for God Himself, for Bhagavan Himself, for for, for the Sadguru. To, uh, to manifest in this world, to give us these teachings, he, that his, his the previous life must have been cut short just before he attained that, so that he had this birth, and what was left incomplete in the previous life was completed in this life. So the kind of sadhana he must have done is exactly the kind of sadhana that he taught us, namely self-investigation and self-surrender. And this person says um, that he achieved such a high state, completely absorbed in the bliss of the self in Virupakshi cave for many uh, weeks. Firstly, he didn't achieve a high state. That is, ego is annihilated. What then remains is the one and only real state. That is, he merged in the one real state, which is the state of pure awareness or the state of Satchit. Um, and such it is uh, beyond high and low. We can't call it high or low. It is the one real state. High and low, these are relative terms. These are a pair of opposites. Bhagavan is, the state that Bhagavan achieved is beyond all pairs of opposites. And even to say he achieved it, who, is, who achieved it? That is, the ego that was aware of itself as I am Venkataraman was swallowed. And what remained is that state of pure awareness. And the person also says, completely absorbed in the bliss of self. Even to say Bhagavan was absorbed in the bliss of self is not quite correct, because then there's one absorbed in another. Bhagavan was that bliss of self itself. That's why in verse 31 of Uludhunapadu, 
he refers to those who achieve that state as Tanmayananda. Uh, uh, in Tamil, uh, if, you, uh, if you put R at the end of a noun, it makes it a personal noun. It's, uh, that R at the end is actually a, a, a respectful plural form. But it, it's not actually intended to be plural. It's um, just like the plural form in many languages is used out of respect. For example, in English, we don't make that distinction. But in many languages, you use the plural form of you if you're addressing an older person or a, a person of, if you're showing your respect to a person. And you use the singular only for those you're very familiar with or those who are younger than you. In the same way in Tamil, the plural uh, the honorific plural is used, even though referring to the uh, singular. So Bhagavan uses this term, Tanmaya Nandaku. Uku uh, means uh, for them, for them. Tanmaya uh, 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 means Tatmaya, that, that is composed of that. That means Brahman. Ananda means happiness. But by adding the R on the end of Tamayananda, it means those who are that Tamayananda. So Bhagavan wasn't merely immersed in Tamayananda, he was Tamayananda itself. He was, he was that happiness itself. I mean, he is that happiness itself. He's eternally that. So it's not just for, for many weeks in Virupakshi cave. From the moment he go, uh, was annihilated, he was permanently, eternally, that bliss of that bliss that we are all seeking, that is Bhagavan. In fact, the very name Ramana means happiness. Uh, Ram, Rami means to, to uh, rejoice or to, to be to give happiness. So he is Bhagavan is happiness itself. He is that bliss itself. Um, <clears throat> and then the, the, this person then asks how to make the mind purer. The the most effective means to make to purify the mind is to is this practice of self-investigation. But in order to understand this, we need to understand what are the impurities in the mind. That is the our real nature is pure awareness. So obviously the first impurity is our rising as ego. Uh, and the, the subsequent impurities are egos vasanas, it's vishaya vasanas, that is the, because the, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it, uh, um, it stands. Grasping inferior forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. Such is the nature of this formless phantom ego. Since ego has no form of its own, he refers to it as formless. What he means by form is any, any object, any phenomenon is a form of one kind or another. So the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by grasping form. That means by grasping things other than itself. Another term that is used to refer to all forms is vishaya. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. So all the forms that ego grasps, its body, mind, and everything that it knows through the five senses, these are all vishayas. So 
the nature of ego is to have vishaya vasanas. Vishaya vasanas means the inclination to cling to vishayas. That is, ego isn't the vishaya vasanas, but it's the nature of ego to have vishaya vasanas. And since those vishaya vasanas, since it's under the sway of those vishaya vasanas that we allow our attention to go outwards, away from ourselves, they are the impurities. They are what needs to be cleansed. The most effective way to, to that is vasanas, vasanas are just inclinations. They have no strength of their own. They gain strength to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by them. For example, supposing you have a, uh, a bad habit, supposing, uh, just a simple example, many people smoke. Smoking is obviously not good for the health. It's also a rather antisocial behavior because for people who don't smoke, it's very unpleasant to be around someone who's smoking. So smoking is not good. But, and, and people generally nowadays, they know smoking is not good for the health. But though they know it's not good for the health, because they allow themselves to be swayed by that inclination to smoke so many times, that inclination has become very strong. So for someone who's been smoking for many years, if they want to give up smoking, it's not easy. Because they, they, that, they've strengthened that vasana to smoke by constantly allowing themselves to be swayed by, them, by it. So how can they give up that vasana? Only if their if they're liking to be healthy is stronger than their liking to smoke, will they be able to overcome it? So if someone wants to give up smoking, they need to constantly remind themselves of the harmful effects of smoking and the beneficial effects of giving up smoking. Then slowly, slowly, whenever the inclination to smoke rises, if they, if they don't allow themselves to be swayed by that, but that inclination will be weakened and the inclination to refrain from smoking will get strengthened. So this is the way vasanas work. So the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, any vishaya vasana, the stronger it becomes. The more we refrain from being swayed by it, the weaker it becomes. So what is the most effective way to weaken all vishaya vasanas? It is only by turning our attention within and trying to hold on to self-attentiveness. Because we ourselves are not a vishaya. Vishayas are all other things. So the inclination to attend to anything other than ourself is called a vishaya vasana. The inclination to attend to ourself is called sat vasana. Sat means being. We, we are nothing but pure being. We're nothing but I am. So that inclination to hold on to our being and thereby to be as we actually are, that is called satvasana. So the more we cling to self-attentiveness, the more we are strengthening the satvasana and weakening the vishayabhasanas. Since the vishayabhasanas are the impurities in the mind, that is the most effective way to purify the mind. However, before we even inclined to come to this path, there has to be a certain degree of purity. So in Upadesha Undia, Bhagavan has, has um, explained the, the various means by which we can gradually purify the mind in order to come to this path of self-investigation, which is the most effective means to purify the mind. In verse 3, he says, um, nishkarmiya karma, that means action that is not done for the fulfillment of a desire. 
nishkarmiya karma done for God. That implies nishkarmiya karma that we do for the love of God. In other words, if our actions are not motivated by any desire for personal gain, but just for the love of God, those actions will purify the mind and thereby show the way to liberation. Why does he say it will show the way to liberation? Because the way to liberation is not action of any kind whatsoever. The way to liberation is turning our attention back within. But it requires a certain degree of purity of mind to recognize that and to be convinced that that is the case. So the, the more the mind is purified by various practices of bhakti, the more we will be drawn to this path of self-investigation, which is the ultimate practice of bhakti. Uh, that's why he says it will show the way to liberation. Then since he's talking about action, in the next verse, in verse 4, he said there are th three types of action. There's actions of mind, of, of, uh, of, of body, speech, and mind. These are the three kinds of, these are the three instruments of action. So ac actions that we can do are of three kinds. If you, the actions that we do without desire, but for the love of God, are called, the actions we do by body are called puja, the actions we do by speech are called japa, the actions we do by mind are called meditation. So, but Bhagavan says that, but um, this is certain, um, puja, japa, and dhyana are actions of mind, speech, and body. And in this, um, and each is superior to the previous one. That means more, when he says superior, he means it's more effective in purifying the mind. But in the previous verse, he said, but nishkarmiya karma dham for the love of God will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. So the, uh, more, better than puja, japa is a more effective way to purify the mind. And better than japa is dhyana, because the, the, the body is a relatively gross instrument of action. The speech is a more subtle instrument of action. The mind is a still more subtle instrument of action. So always the more subtle is more powerful. And then he, in the next three verses, he goes through each of these. He talks about what is puja. And he gives a very broad definition of puja. He doesn't say just going to temple and doing the ritualistic worship. He says, if you, if you consider that all forms are forms of God, um, that is, everything is, is a form of God, and if you worship accordingly, uh, that is, ennuru yabum irayuru amena, all the eight forms, that is, Shiva is considered to have eight forms, that is, the, the five elements, uh, space, uh, 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 fire, air, um, uh, water and earth. These are five elements. In other words, everything makes up not only the material existence, but even the, the subtle forms of these elements make up the mind. Um, the, the five elements, the sun, moon, and jiva. These are called the eight forms of God, according to uh, Shaiva Siddhanta philosophy. So th these basically cover everything. So whatever you worship, considering it to be a form of God, is good worship of God. So Bhagavan gives a broad definition. Worship isn't just ritualistic worship. For example, if you if you see a hungry person and taking it but it's God in the form of that person, if you offer them food and if you do it for the love of God, that's good worship of God. If you um if you 
are aware that we are, our modern lifestyles are polluting this planet and causing so much harm, um, in danger, I mean, causing the extinction of so many species, causing global warming, rising sea levels, so much hardship for so many people and so many other living beings. Trying to live an eco-friendly life, if you do it with the attitude that this whole world is God, that's a good worship of God. So in other words, Bhagavan gives us a very broad definition. So we, if you do any action of body out of love for God, it's a good worship of God, is basically what he says there. Then in the next verse, he's, uh, that, that verse 5, then in verse 6 he says, um, better than singing hymns of praise aloud is japa. Better than japa done aloud is japa done softly within the mouth. Better than japa done softly within the mouth is mental japa. That is a kind of dhyana. When he says better than, he means it's more efficacious in purifying the mind. And then in verse 7, he says, rather than, than, sorry, rather than interrupted meditation, uninterrupted meditation, like the flow of a, a, a stream of water or the, the pour, the, a flow of oil, of a pouring oil, you know, it's an unbroken stream, that is a better for that is a better meditation. Why? Because if you sit down to meditate on God, on some name or form of God, if your mind is constantly being distracted by other thoughts, that means you're more interested in thinking about those other things than you are in thinking about God. But the more your love for God increases, the less you'll be inclined to think of other things because He's taking care of everything. So you'll be able to meditate on God more uninterruptedly. Uh, so the, the, the extent to which our meditation is uninterrupted, that is the measure of the love we have. And love is the key to this path, because um, this is part of bhakti. But then the most important verse is verse 8. In verse 8, what he says is, rather than anya bhava. Anya means what is other. And bhava in this context means meditation. So. Uh, Anya Bhava means meditation on something other than oneself. In the context, it implies meditation on God as if he is other than oneself. So rather than meditation on God as other than oneself, Ananya Bhava, that meditation on him as not other than oneself, in which he is I, that is, uh, he says, Avanahamahum Ananya Bhava. Avanahamahum means in which he is I. So when we recognize that God is not something other than ourselves, he is that which is shining in our heart as I, and therefore meditating on him as nothing other than I, that is, he says, anatinum utamum, that is the best among all. That means it is the most efficacious means of purifying the mind. For the reason I explained earlier, because when you're meditating on anything other than even a name or form of God is a vishaya, something other than us, yourself. Whereas when you're meditating on yourself alone, you're not allowing the mind to go out towards anything else. So that is the most efficacious way of uh, weakening the vishaya vasana, thereby purifying the mind. And, and whereas... Um, Puja, Japa, and Dhyana are actions of mind, speech, and body, respectively. Self-attentiveness, 
Ananya Baba, turning our attention back towards our soul, is not an action, but a state of just being. That is, when we attend to anything other than ourself, our mind is moving, our mind or attention is moving away from ourself towards some other thing. Whereas when we attend to ourself alone, our attention is not moving anywhere. It's just, it's just subsiding back into its source. Um, as as Bhagavan explained in so many other verses, after what we talked about earlier. So in the verse nine, he goes on to say, a Baba Balatinal, that means by the strength of meditation. What meditation is he referring to there? By implication, he's referring to the Ananya Baba, meditation on God as nothing other than I. So by the strength of that meditation, Baba Natita Sabhava Tirutale. Sabhava means the state of being. Or, or the, uh, yeah, the state of being it can also be taken as the real being, but it uh, main meaning is state of being. The state of being, so being in the state of being, uh, that is bhavana tita. That means that transcends meditation. Bhavana there means meditation in the sense of mental activity. That is, meditating on anything other than ourselves is a mental activity. But when we're meditating on ourselves alone. The ego subsides and remains in the state of pure being, which is beyond all mental activity, and that Bhagavan says that is parabhakti tattva. So, all these other, all bhakti practices, if done not for gaining anything from God, but just for the love of God alone, they are means to purify the mind. But the most effective of all means to purify the mind is this practice of self investigation. Sorry, um, I talked for quite a long um, time. Um, there was just one sort of two very quick points, um, which was actually to do with the last uh, question. Uh, one is the word ego, um, and the way you explained it uh, is absolutely clear, um, especially later on. Uh, but the Sanskrit word is ahankara. That is the word that Bhagwan is using, or, which is being translated as ego. Um, yeah, Bhagwan sometimes uses the word ahankaram in the Tamil form of ahankara. Uh, but generally, in Tamil, the term he uses is ahande. Ahande is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word ahanta, which also means ego. Ahanta means I-ness, literally. Okay. Yes, I'm simply asking because the word ahankara, um, um, sort of, uh, for those who don't know, it's formed of two sort of, it's a compound. Um, one is aham, which is simply I am. The other is kara or akara, whichever way, uh, which is sort of, I'm a kind of an active thing. So usually, you know, you can talk about it as, uh, and Michael can just substantiate this. One can say it's it's the eye maker or the eye object or the eye concept or the subject or whatever, or, you know, sort of the, the objective subject, the subject which has been created, the eye maker. Uh, with that, because there is a sort of, a, because this is not a given thing, obviously. It is something which is, you know, it is grasping form and so on, that sort of thing. So yeah. the eye maker would seem to be a reasonable sort of translation and it, uh, and it, it and it doesn't reify it so much, make it into a thing, because then we can't, you know, then it's more difficult to do, you know, yeah. to do anything yeah. about it investigatively. Is that would that be correct, Michael? Uh, yes, yes, that is. Ego is the subject. Ego is that which knows things other than itself. So that ego, that that is, there's only one eye. That one eye in its pure condition is what Bhagavan generally refers to as I am. 
I or Atmasarupa, the real nature of ourself. The reason he refers to it as I am is I am means I exist. It's our existence or our being. Whereas ego is that same I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am this body, I am this person, I am Michael, I am Shalini. So it's only when we experience ourselves as a set of adjuncts, in other words, a set of five she's that Bhagavan refers to as body, uh, but we experience anything other than ourselves. So that is the, as you say, the eye maker. That is that I is, or, or even to say eye maker, it is the it is the the made eye, the constructed eye. Okay. That then. is the pure eye is 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 not constructed. It's it's pure condition. But when it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it becomes a construct. Yes. So we could eye... say it's eye construct. Yeah, the eye construct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, and one very, very quick remark before I'm going to quickly go through these mm. questions uh, in the next hour, seven of them or whatever. Um, when we're talking about uh, these death, uh, sort of death and that death occurs, um, just to clarify, because the, uh, because it can, because sometimes then people, because it can have other implications. Um, when the death of the psychophysical organism occurs, that is the body and mind, so to speak, when real death occurs, there is no coming back. Um, this is, um, I mean, when um, when there is actually a death, um, I think what is meant is that there is uh, a, um, a kind of a seeming lifelessness of the body and mind, uh, which say certain medical instruments at this sort of stage when we're, uh, you know, um, they cannot register, the heart doesn't seem to be beating for a while, or uh, the brain activity, according to today's uh, instruments, is not measurable. But it is not death itself, because no one has come back, uh, even the greatest uh, sages from death, to report that they have died. This is the end of this psychophysical organ. Just to clarify, because in case people want to, you know, because uh, sometimes when the mind starts working and say, oh, well, you know, you know, that you can come back from the, I don't know, uh, you know, there are all sorts of funny things which go on uh, in our minds when we think we can come back from the dead, so to, so to speak, or someone can come back, just to clarify that. Yes. that. <laughs> but truly speaking, this life is just a dream. So we, we, when this dream comes to an end, that is what we refer to as death. And then, we, then another dream begins, and in that other dream, we have some other identity. We, we take some other body to be I. But though the, the person we seem to be in the next dream will be a different person, the, what it, the continuity is the same ego and the same vasanas. That is, what ego takes along with it from life to life to life is its vasanas. So to the extent to which the mind is purified in this lifetime, that will carry on in the next lifetime. That's what Bhagavan meant when he said, Edo vitukarai totokarai. What, what, what was left incomplete in a previous life, that gets resumed. Because people often ask, oh, what if I don't attain this in this lifetime? Is all my effort going to waste? No, the very fact that you're, you've been drawn to this path and you're following this path in this life, you will surely be drawn to this same path again. Until you reach the end, once you once we've started on this path, there's no turning back. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'll start on the first of the next ten questions, 
um, which <laughs> so, um, but the question is on verse six of Arunachala Ashtaka, in which Bhagwan explains how this world picture is created. I have listened to the video you made on this verse. However, this is still unclear to me. Is Bhagwan saying all this creation, which extends to 13.8 billion light years and beyond, is purely my creation and came into existence as soon as I woke up from deep sleep? I feel having a clear understanding of this verse helps us greatly when going on with daily life involved in the world. Kindly elaborate on this, please. Um, when we say it is our creation, we need to be very careful in what we mean by that. That is, I can't say, I, Michael, have created all of this, because Michael is itself a part of this creation. In a dream, we always experience ourselves as a person in that dream. The dream person is not the creator of the dream. The dream person is a part of the dream. Who has created the dream? It is ego that is the creator. It is ego that has projected the dream and takes itself to be a person in that dream. So we need to be very clear what is creating all this is not the person whom we now seem to be, but the ego that is mistaking this person to be ourselves. That is why, though a dream is created by, though we are the creator of a dream, when we're in a dream, we don't seem to have control over it. We don't feel ourselves to be the creator of the dream. If, a, if we're being chased by a monster, we can't just will that monster away. We can't stop the monster in its tracks. No, we have to run away and hide from the monster. Why? Because in the dream, we are not experiencing ourselves as a creator. We're experiencing ourselves as a creature. The cre so the creator is ego, but ego always becomes a victim of its own creation. This is Maya, because ego is what has created this, but it takes itself to be a part of its creation. So it, it is trapped in its own creation. So yes, Bhagavan is saying that you as ego are what has created all of this. That is, these 13 billion light years or whatever it is, what is this? This is just an idea. The, the fact that there, there's a vast universe out there, it's all in the mind only. Where, where does any of this exist except in our mind? Can, can we, do we have any evidence that anything exists outside our mind? Obviously we don't, because we experience it all within our mind. So in, in a dream, if you ask the same question in a dream, you'll be talking about in this vast universe of 13.6 of billion uh, light years, it's, that'll see, that is just an idea in your dreaming mind. So how vast this universe is, it's just in the mind. Not even in, we, 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 when we refer to the mind, we tend to point to our head. But even this head is partly also within the mind. The brain is within the mind. The whole universe is within the mind. And that which knows it all is ego. So it's only in the view of ego that this universe, with all its billions of light years and all its science and history and geography and all that we know, it all exists only in the view of ego. None of it exists in sleep. When we don't rise as ego in sleep, we are not aware of anything other than I am. So nothing exists 
independent of ego, what it, that which actually exists is the pure awareness I am. Everything else exists only in the view of ego. And because it exists in the view of ego, it's a dream of the ego. So ego is the dreamer who has created all of this. Does that adequately answer that question? I'm sure it does. Thank you, Michael. The next question is, uh, dear sir, one verse I can very much relate with is verse 79 of Akshar Manamalai. O Arunachal, graciously protect me so that I may not be like a ship tossing in a great storm without a helmsman. Could you please explain this verse? I feel a deep sense of purposelessness in life and feel it is very futile. But still, I can neither let go of my base attachments, nor can I subside completely at the feet of Bhagwan. I feel like a worthless supplicant, begging for this and that, and unnecessarily troubling Bhagwan. Surely if he takes charge of me, then he can destroy even all my likes and dislikes, which alone will be happiness. Is that what Bhagwan is praying for in this verse on, on our behalf, to protect us from becoming a catastrophic shipwreck in the great stormy ocean of our likes and dislikes. Yes, what Bhagavan is praying there is he's praying for uh, so that I should not be like a um, like a um, like a, a ship tossed about in a storm without a helmsman. The truth is, we are never without a helmsman. Bhagavan is always the helmsman. But when our minds are outward going, we we failed to recognize that he's ever in our heart, ever protecting us, ever taking care of us. So we seem to be like a ship uh, tossed helplessly around. What we need to do is he is, he is ever guiding our life. But in, in, instead of recognizing that he's ever guiding our life and therefore yielding ourselves to him, we are so enthusiastically going outwards, to, trying to get this. If I get this, I'll be happy. If I get that, I'll be happy. If I achieve this, we, we, our mind is constantly going outwards. We're constantly ignoring him. In, in uh, Nana, Bhagavan says, when one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, Karyas in that context means everything that ought to happen, everything that is meant to happen, and everything that we ought to do and everything that we're meant to do, all is being uh, driven by him. So why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like this. Yes, I've got to, I, I've got to improve my circumstances to take care of my family, but I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to get better educated, I've got to earn more money, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. We constantly thinking that everything depends on us, but the more we recognize that our whole life is being taken care of by him, down to the smallest detail, every good thing that we experience in our life is given by him. Every bad thing or everything that we consider bad is also given by him. Everything is his grace. The whole universe is under his arulakshi, under the rule of his grace. The more we recognize that, the more we, I'm not just believing it to a superficial level of mind, the more we recognize it deep in our heart, the more we will yield ourselves to him. 
happily yield ourselves to him. So how to recognize that clearly? The more we turn our attention within, the more our attention, the more our, we are bathing, so to speak, in the clarity that is our own real nature. So the more we turn within, the clearer it will become to us how our whole life, uh, uh, not only our inward life, our, our salvation, but even our outward life, every detail is being taken care of by him. The more we recognize that, the more willing we will be to yield ourselves to him. So that, that prayer is a very, very important prayer, because so many times in our life, we've, we all face difficulties in life, uh, in financial difficulties, health difficulties, uh, bereavement, so many different types of difficulties. That is the very nature of embodied existence. Difficulties of one sort or another, problems of one sort or another are inevitable. There's no one, no jiva in this whole universe who lives a trouble-free life. We all face troubles of one sort or another. But it's all happening for our own good. If we recognize that, we'll be willing to, we, we, we will be more and more willing to yield ourselves to him. It's when we fail to recognize that, but we seem to be like a ship tossed around in a storm. And we all feel like that. There's so many times in our life when we, particularly when we face when everything seems to be going fine, we can say, oh, I'm, I'm practicing the path of self-investigation, I'm practicing the path of self-surrender. But when difficulties come, then there's another verse that comes soon after that. Mukila mungatu mukuram hardeni Arunachala, instead of being like a mirror held before a noseless man, uplift me and embrace me. Often the difficulties we face in life, the the illnesses, or the pains, or the, um, or the financial losses, or the bereavement, or so many things are there that will agitate, upset our mind in one way or another. Then we, are, then we feel like um, the, the Bhagavan is like a mirror held before a noseless man. He's just showing us our own inadequacies. But seeing our own inadequacies is a great blessing, because the more we, we recognize how hope how helpless, I mean, how we we cannot follow this path at all. We cannot surrender ourselves. We cannot investigate ourselves except by his grace. The more we recognize that, the more we subside. And the more we subside, the more his grace will be, take over. More his, that is, his grace is always controlling our life. But by our subsiding, we are refraining from obstructing. So the whole process becomes smoother and smoother. If you want to summarize all of the practice of Bhagavan's teachings in one word, it is subside. That is, Bhagavan's teachings are all about ego subsiding, 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 becoming more and more humble. And the most effective way to subside is to turn our attention within, because then our ego automatically subsides. And when we face difficulties in life, when we when, when we accept all these difficulties that are given by Bhagavan, he's taking care of everything. Let him give me any amount of difficulty. He's doing it only for my own good. And that way we subside more and more and more and more and more. That is what this path is all about. So long as we are rising and rushing outwards, we are, we are going, that is pravritti marga, we're going outwards. Bhagavan's path is nivritti marga, withdrawal, subsidence. 
So the, the more we the more we allow our mind to go outward, the more we will seem to be like a, a ship tossed about in a storm without a helmsman. The more we turn back within and subside back within, the more we will recognize that however great the storm of vasanas may be, Bhagavan is a, he is a, he is a, a sarati, he's Patasarati, he's the, he's the charioteer of our life, he's the helmsman of our life, he's taking care of everything. And the more we recognize how he's taking care of everything, the more willing we will be to subside. So this path of self-investigation and self-surrender is such a beautiful path. Of course, we, the, 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 what we are all lacking is sufficient love to, 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 to follow it deeply enough. But the more we, we recognize what a beautiful path it is Bhagavan has given us, what an easy path it is, all he's asking us to do is to yield ourselves to him more and more and more. And we yield ourselves to him, not by rising as ego and rushing outwards, but by turning back within and subsiding back into the heart. I hope I've adequately answered that question. I think that was beautifully said, Michael. That was lovely. Thank you. So, so this is um, um, from somebody who says that I'm a newbie and I have a question. I have had an experience where I have experienced a phenomenon where I saw myself sleeping and watching myself from above, but there was another me that was a witness. The moment my mind realized the phenomenon, I was out of it. What did I experience if there is only ego and the true self? And the other part of this, I'll ask um, with the next question. Okay. What experiences any type of phenomena is only ego. So actually, we're not. If we have such an experience, we're not actually asleep. We are. We are in a um, in a dreamlike state. Um, so any experience in which we experience anything other than our being is the experiencer of that is ego. But pure I is pure awareness. It doesn't experience anything other than itself. So it's only when we rise as ego that we experience anything. So any experience, whatever type of experience it may be, this is why Bhagavan gives us a very valuable clue. To whom is this experience? To whom does all this appear? That is a that is a me that is a a point a pointy whatever we may experience we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves the one who is experiencing it the one to whom it all appears so it doesn't matter what we experience in the course of spiritual practice or in the course of life so many experiences may come Ex our aim is not to experience anything our aim is to know the reality of the experiencer. Who am I? So we need to be turning our attention, whatever experience may come, to whom is this experience? In whose view does all this appear? We turn our attention back to ourselves, the one to whom it all appears. Um, there's another question. I'm going to do this quickly because, yeah. again, it's exactly yeah. about the same topic, uh, which is, my question is, in deep sleep, if there is no ego, is the experience doing, during deep sleep the same as the experience of the self outside of deep sleep? Why do we have memory of what happens when we are outside of deep sleep and no memory of what happens during deep sleep? Because memory is all about... Uh, 
all about impressions. That is, a memory is a we retain the impression, we experience something that what we experience leaves an impression in our mind so we can recall it afterwards. In sleep, we are not experiencing anything other than our own being. And our own being is the same throughout all the three states. So all we know about sleep is, yes, I slept. But the very fact that we know I slept, but what, does it, what, do, what do we mean when we say I slept? I was in a state in which I was not aware of anything. How can we know that we were in a state in which we were not aware of anything if we were not aware of being in that state? So what we remember about sleep is only our own existence. I, we, 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 what we actually experience in sleep is only I am. In, from the perspective of a waking mind, we translate that as not as I was, but I was asleep. Asleep means a state we, we, we were aware of nothing other than our own being. So, uh, so memory is all concerned with um, what mental impression, we, that every experience is a mental impression. Uh, so, and so we, some of the mental impressions we've experienced in the past, we are able to recall. That is what we call a memory. But um, we can loosely say we remember our existence in sleep, but it's not, it's not memory in the same sense. It's not, it's not a, our existence doesn't leave an impression. Our existence is, is the ground, that, the, the, the underlying reality. But the one thing we experience always, whether we're in awake, uh, asleep, or dreaming, uh, one thing we always experience is I am. The difference between sleep on the one hand and waking and dream on the other hand, in sleep we are aware just I am, nothing other than I am. In waking and dream we are aware I am, but we're not aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person, I am this body. In other words, we, we, we have mixed and conflated with this fundamental awareness I am, a set of adjuncts called this person or this body. And only when we experience ourselves thus do we experience things other than ourselves. That which experiences itself as I am this body and consequently experiences other things is ego. But pure I am is just pure being, pure awareness. It doesn't experience anything other than itself. Um, now we'll go to the broader questions, uh, the two mm. together. Uh, so this is from a person who was asking about uh, watching uh, from, from sleep, and I'll read the question after this. Yeah. So the other question is, how does one do this investigation of uh, distinguishing basically the ego and the true self? And the next question is, um, could you explain what is enlightenment or self-realization according to Bhagwan, and how can it be achieved? And what are the mechanics of this process? Thank you. Okay, I'll deal with the first question first. How can you distinguish the snake from the rope? So long as you don't look at it carefully enough, it seems to be a snake. If you look at it carefully enough, you'll see, oh, it's just a rope. So it's only by seeing the underlying reality, that is, the snake is a mere appearance. There is no snake there, it's a mere appearance. But what is it that is appearing as that snake? It's only a rope. 
So long as you see it as a snake, you don't see the underlying reality. If you want to see the underlying reality, you need to look at the snake very carefully. If you look at the snake carefully enough, you'll see, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Exactly the same with ego and the pure I am. The more we keenly we attend to ego, by attending to ego keenly enough, we will recognize that what now seems to us to be ego, seems to us to be this adjunct conflated awareness I am this body, it's actually the pure awareness I am. So, how to distinguish the pure awareness I am from ego? Look at ego carefully and you'll, you'll see that what it actually is, is the pure awareness I am. I hope that adequately answers that. And that also answers the next part of the question, how to practice this. The practice is just to look at ourselves carefully. Look at, obviously it doesn't mean with our eyes, with our mental eye, that is our power of attention. Bhagavan says in, in Akshramlai, um, Tirambiyaham, turning within, Tane dinam ahakankan, Daily see yourself with the inner eye. Daily then implies constantly, repeatedly. Tane uh, uh, means oneself. Ahakan uh, uh, means inner eye. Khan means see. So it is by turning our attention within. Within means back towards ourself. And trying to see ourself. Don't worry about whether the self is ego or, 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 or your real nature, because it's one and the same. That is, when, when, you're, when you're looking at what seems to you to be a snake, it's actually you're looking only at the rope. So we don't have to say, do, some people ask, uh, what is the I in so when Bhagavan says, who am I, what is the I? Is it ego or is it, is it the pure I? Doesn't matter. Look at the eye. What, whatever you now experience as I, attend to that. If you attend to your eye keenly enough, you'll see it is just the pure eye. What now seems to be ego, what now seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts, by looking at it carefully, it, it, it shines forth as it actually is, as a pure eye. By looking at the snake carefully enough, we, 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 we see what it, what it actually is, is not a snake, but just a rope. So the whole practice from beginning to end is attending to ourselves, turning our attention back and attending to, to ourselves, to I, whatever. Don't, we need not distinguish, whether, we need not say whether it's ego or whether it's um, our real nature, because it's one and the same thing. That is, the difference between ego and the pure eye is a difference in appearance, not a difference in substance. They are one and the same substance. They are one and the same thing. The difference is only in appearance. The pure eye is what actually is there. Ego is that same pure eye seeming to be something else. Now I seem to be Michael. That is a false appearance. What I actually am is just a pure eye. So the, the, the practice Bhagavan has taught us is extremely simple, and he's given a very clear definition of this in, um, in, in Nana. He says, in the 16th paragraph of Nana, he defines what is meant by vichara. Um, um, <coughs> Sada kalamam, always, manate, the mind, 
atmabil, in, in or on oneself, vetiripatu, uh, that is fixing the mind or keeping the mind fixed on oneself always, that alone is what is called atmabhichara. That is the, the literal meaning of that is the name atmabhichara refers only to keeping the mind always on oneself. In other words, the mind there means attention. We need to keep our attention always fixed on ourselves. That is all there is to this practice. It's an extremely simple practice. But though it's extremely simple, it's a very subtle practice. And the mind will keep on, our attention will keep on jumping outwards and trying to grasp other things. However many times the mind goes outwards, we need to bring it back. To whom do all these other things appear? To me. So we turn our attention back to I. I hope I've answered both halves of that question adequately. I think so, Michael, very much. I have read in various teachings that having a human birth is necessary for God-realization. This indicates that Maya itself is necessary for realization, or is this a false notion? Well, first, yeah, generally it is said that a human birth is is advantageous because in the human birth we clearly distinguish three states or at least it seems to us there are three states we we are able to distinguish sleep dream and waking it is said but in other species that they're not able to distinguish waking and dream in the same way the advantage of Though Bhagavan says that waking and dream, but what we now take to be waking is actually a dream, the advantage of, of being able to distinguish what seems to be dream from what, what seems to be waking, the advantage is we, it enables us to question the reality of a waking state. That is, we all, when we wake up from, so long as we're dreaming, the dream world and dream body, everything seems to be real. But when we, as soon as we wake up, because our identification with the dream body is severed, as soon as we wake up, we are once recognized, oh, it was just a dream, it wasn't real. But now we are dreaming. But this seems to be very real because we are dreaming this is what we're currently dreaming so being able to distinguish dream and waking enables us to question the reality of, of waking state and to recognize that actually though they seem to be two different states they're actually one and the same they're both only dreams that is one of the uh, things that is pointed out about an advantage of human birth we have that power of uh of viveka of, of being able to distinguish that but it's obviously not absolutely true that we need a human birth. Bhagavan has very clearly illustrated that in the case of Lakshmi. Lakshmi was a cow. Uh, but uh, Bhagavan very clearly indicated uh, that is, after she passed away, he wrote a verse in which he referred to Vim, uh, Pasu Lakshmi Vimuktanal. Vimuktanal means the day of her liberation. And Devaraja Mudliya asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is that just a... Just like we, is that just like a formal way of saying, like we refer to someone and they're liberated if they left the body, or is it actually liberation? And Bhagavan didn't, didn't reply explicitly, but he made it very, that is, in, in his own subtle way, he clearly indicated that she had actually attained liberation. So a, a human birth is not absolutely essential. But 
whatever birth we have, now we happen to be human, let's make a, take a bunch of that. If the next life we happen to be a dog, let's try and take a bunch of that. Whatever, whether we are aware of ourselves as I am a human, I am an elephant, I am a dog, I'm a cat, I'm a cow, I'm a tiger, whatever it is, what is common to all jivas, whether you're the highest god, Vishnu, or whether you're the lowest e insect, the one thing that is common to all jivas, all jivas are aware of themselves as I, uh, as I am. And that is the reality. As Krishna says, Ahamatma Gudakesha, I am, the, I am the Atman in all the various jivas. So the Atman means, in that context, means that I am, that pure I am, is shining in the heart of each and every one of us. So it is not absolutely necessary to be human. In whatever be the birth, um, we, we, because we're always aware I am, we can turn our attention back towards I am. But generally, there is a general belief that a human birth is advantageous. Maybe part of the reason why it's said is, let's make use of this. Now we have a human birth, let's make use of it. If in the next life we happen to be born as a tiger, let's make use of that and investigate. Who am I, this tiger? Who am I who now mistake myself to be this tiger? The key to success in the spiritual path is the love to turn within. If that love to turn within is cultivated in this lifetime, whatever the next life may be, whether we're born as a, a whatever type of creature we may be born as, that love to turn within will be there and will continue. But the chances are, once we've come to this spiritual path, the next birth will be a human birth, most probably. But what does it matter? Bhagavan, this is not any, need not concern us. All these things are being taken care of by Bhagavan, so we can leave them to Bhagavan. All we pray is that he should annihilate this ego. How he's going to bring about this, we know how stubborn this ego, how, how reluctant we are to let go, how reluctant we are to surrender. So it's only by his grace that we can be, that we can be brought to a point where we're finally willing to surrender ourselves to him. How he's going to achieve that, that is known to him. So let's leave everything to him. All we have to do is to try our best to follow the path that he has shown us, leave everything else to him. Leaving everything else to him is itself a part of following the path that he has shown us. Um, the next question is, uh, is regarding past lives. It's uh, that uh, didn't Ramana teach that there was no such thing as past lives and wouldn't the idea of past lives contradict the statement that uh, everything is only Brahman, it's only, uh, there is only one, everything is one, as taught in Advaita. The quote is, in question is from Bhagavan, reincarnation exists only so long as there is ignorance. There is really no reincarnation at all, either now or before, nor will there be, be any hereafter. This is the truth. Did Bhagavan ever endorse the idea of past lives? Some clarification would be. Appreciate it. What Bhagavan said is, if you're born now, then there will be rebirth. Because, uh, and Bhagavan very clearly refers to, um, in the first verse of uh, Ekama Panchakam, Bhagavan says, forgetting, forgetting oneself, that means forgetting one's real nature, uh, taking the body to be I, undergoing innumerable births, in Nila uh, Piravi, he says. Oh, wait a minute, I'll just get the 
verse. He said he very clearly and explicitly refers to Hanne um, Marandu, forgetting oneself. Hanu Vetanai Eni, thinking oneself to be, thinking the body alone to be oneself. Enela Pirivi Editu, taking innumerable births. So, so long as we rise as ego, we take a body to be I. That is a, just a dream state. When this dream comes to an end, it, until ego is destroyed, it'll go on dreaming one dream after another dream after another dream. What, what are called the countless, the, piravi, the, the countless lives, the countless births, is nothing but countless dreams. So Bhagavan very, very clearly indicates that. So, but Bhagavan did say, the ultimate truth is we're not the truth is we 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 are not this body so that since we are not this body we are not born now if we are not born now then we were never born before but so long as we mistake ourselves to be this body we seem to have been born and if if we so long as we seem to have been born then there is there seem to be innumerable births it's not the ultimate truth but it's the truth so long as there's ego because the, the nature of ego, ego is a dreamer. When one dream comes to an end, another dream starts. So each life, our present life, is nothing but a dream. When this dream comes to an end, if ego hasn't come to an end, the ego will continue dreaming. So the end of a dream is not the end of a, the dreamer. So long as the dreamer exists, the dreaming will continue. So we, there's so many things we need to understand the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings. If we understand the basic principles of Bhagavan's teaching, there'll be no confusion about these matters. In what sense does Bhagavan say there's no such thing as rebirth? In what sense does he say there's uh, we take innumerable births? If we are born now, we certainly were innumerable births. But are we born now? That is what we need to investigate. If we have this body, yes, we've certainly been born, and we'll be born again and again and again. But are we this body? That is what we need to investigate. Michael, just a quick question on that. Um, mm. So, uh, if uh, sort of I take myself to be a body, to be an entity of some kind, then uh, uh, sort of uh, the dream uh, that I'm a body will recur. Now, the connection between those is simply um, the identification with something or someone as I, the, and underlying that is that ahanta, the sense of I, uh, the sense of being I in some sense, not true, uh, <laughs> not the true sense of just existence, but the sense of being something or or just the sense of I, something like that. So that is the connecting link. And is that, um, is it, no, this is sort of strange. I mean, it's again a dream. So um, um, is it the same link? Uh, how would, no, it's not the same link, uh, but, but it is the same link. Um, that kind of continuity of the sense of I, the Ahanta, there is only that there's no such thing that it's different for different people because uh, the different people only occur in uh, you know when that when that one anta is there so in that sense there's only in a way just that egoness or just that ahanta the iness it's not multiple yes it's just one and uh, in that one whatever ahanta that one ego um 
all the worlds and all the the idea of all the entities and everything appears. Am I communicating this correctly? Yes, a, a simple way of of understanding it: ego, the hunter, is the dreamer. What is the what is the continuity between one dream and the next? Is the dreamer is the same dreamer? What the dreamer identifies, the person the dreamer takes itself to be may be different, but it's and so the dream is different. But the the dreamer remains the same. And what the dreamer takes with it from one dream to the next, from one life to the next, is its vasanas. And the whole dream is actually a projection of its vasanas. So the vasanas are the seeds. That is why the vasanas collectively are referred to as the karana sarira. The vasanas are not ego, because they, they, they're called the karana sarira. Sarira means a body. That which takes that karana sarira to be I, that is ego. That which identifies itself. Yeah. So what I'm sort of, because again, you know, this is, uh, I'm asking questions from a dream and this is always going to be problematic. Yeah. So what I was trying to sort of get at is what you've just said yeah. so, so much more clearly. Uh, but the other thing was that we have that true awareness, uh, the I amness, uh, which yeah. is yeah. the true self. Then we have uh, taking myself to be something, um, uh, sort of grasping, or that mm. sense of I-ness, the sense mm. of I-ness, which is not the true I-ness, not the yeah. I am, the sense of I-ness. Now, uh, which is grasping and has continuity when it takes itself to be uh, this person or that person or whatever, this yeah. world, that world, whatever it might be. There is only one sense of I-ness, one ego uh, in which all the different dreams of different persons arises we cannot really talk about different egos uh, yeah. in that one i am uh, there is yeah. only um, this is uh, yeah this this is Bhagavan's teaching right. this is uh, what one ego ekajiva vada it's called okay so but, there is one but, true self and yeah. one uh, and one ego which yeah. arises in which all the worlds of all beings all the different dreams uh, of the different streams of the different vasana streams uh, they're all constructed and fabricated uh, through this one fabrication on top of the true self. Well, yes, we, we can understand crudely. this very simply. There is one dreamer, but one dreamer takes itself to be one person in its dream. But in its dream, it sees so many other people who seem to be just like it. So in the view of the one ego, there seem to be so many egos. Okay. Because, they, because the ego takes itself to be a person, it takes every person to be an ego. Yeah. So, so long as our attention is going outwards, we need to act in this world as if there are multiple e egos. But for turning within, it is most useful to recognize there's only one ego. It is this I, all this vast universe with the, the countless billions of jivas, in whose view does it exist? In, in my view. So who am I to whom all these things appear? So Ekajiva Vada is taught as an aid to, uh, to, to, to make it easier for us to turn within, to strengthen our love to turn within. But it doesn't mean that we should, we should go around tell, uh, telling people, oh, you're all my mental projection, I alone exist, you don't exist. That obviously would be uh, misapplying it. So long as we're looking outwards, we are identifying ourselves as a person, there seem to be so many other people who seem to be just like us. 
the, the same concern that we have for this body, everyone else seems to have for their own body. So we should respect all, we should treat all with kindness, care, and uh, consideration. We should not harm others. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is. Um, and uh, the minute we stop thinking that there is multiplicity of egos, uh, the ability to go um, within deepens so much more. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It makes a huge difference because exactly. we move away from this thing of multiplicity. Yeah, yeah. And this, this I am this body and there's so many other bodies who are people. Yeah. I mean, but we should take care because this is real at a conventional level. We have to take yeah, it yeah. as real yeah. in terms of our acting yeah. Uh, yeah. compassionately, ethically, and so on. That's very yeah. important. Otherwise, but, we'll have more asanas. Yeah, yeah. But the whole spiritual path is that moving from multiplicity to oneness. When we look outwards, there's multiplicity. To find oneness, we need to withdraw back within and subside back into ourselves. Now, this uh, um, there are two questions left, and uh, there uh, I think this one is a little bit more. Uh, and the other one is, I think, quite a very simple one. Uh, uh, so this is uh, that it says, uh, uh, Michael, if I have some form of anxiety, whether at work or at home, why is it that it feels stronger while I'm practicing self-inquiry? I also notice that I experience more anxiety and stress if I wake up in the middle of the night or when I am in stillness during self-inquiry. The anxiety, however, feels less when I am engrossed at work. I would hope that it should be the opposite. Could you please help me to understand what is happening here? Okay, very simply. When our mind is rushing outwards, we don't even notice it's rushing outwards because we're so caught up in these things. If you go to, if you start talking to other people who are not following the spiritual path, if we, if you talk about vasanas, they won't even understand what we're talking about because then they, they, they are aware of the vasanas, but they're aware of them only in the form of desires, and they don't even consider their desires are bad. No, I want this car. I want that bigger house. I want this. I want that. It's all good. Uh, that that is our whole society. This consumer society, this uh, that we live in, is glorifying desire. It's right to be. You need to be an aspiring citizen. You need to uh, raise yourself up by your own bootlaces. You need to be successful in life. You need to acquire a lot and be more richer. And this, this, we, uh, we have made a god of desire. So the, the minds of most, the majority of people are so outward going, so, um, so caught up in their desires that the desires are a gross form of vasanas. And that is, vasanas are very subtle. They are just inclinations. Those inclinations sprout in the form of likes and dislikes. Likes and dislikes are relatively subtle. And just because you like something doesn't mean you necessarily desire it. For example, you can, you can see a beautiful, um, a beautiful painting or a beautiful object or something. You say, oh, I like that. 
but you don't necessarily desire it. But if you if you dwell on it more and more, I like that, I like that, I want that for me. So the likes and dislikes grow into the desires and aversions, and they grow into hopes and fears and everything. So but the subtle seeds that give rise to all these things, these are the basanas. So um uh I've now forgotten what the question is, but, but, but the point is, but more, oh yes, I remember what the question is. Yeah, when we are, when our mind is rushing outwards, because we are so caught up in the vasanas, we are not even, a, we, that the vasanas have already sprouted as desires and things, we're caught up in all those things. We 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 lose touch with the with the, the that that is we overlook the the subtle nature of the seeds that give rise to all these things. When we are trying to turn our attention within, we are trying to withdraw our mind from all these things. Then we become aware of these same likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. We become aware of them in more subtle form. We become aware of how they. And Bhagavan describes vasanas in, in the tenth paragraph of, of, of Nana. Uh, though Vishaya vasanas, which came, come from time immemorial, rise in countless numbers like ocean waves. So every thought in our mind, every perception, every memory, everything, it's all the sprouting of vasanas. When our mind is rushing outwards, we are caught up in gross things. When we are trying to turn within, we become more and more aware of the, the, the subtle seeds that give rise to these things. So anxiety and so on, we, we may overcome our anxiety by being engrossed in external activity. But when we try to turn within, then the in the inner anxieties and insecurities and so on become more and more clear to us. So our aim is not to know these things, but inevitably in this path of going within, we we learn so much about the the, the vasanas and how they function and how they draw our mind away from our, our ourselves. So the the deeper we go within, the the, 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 the more we will be um, confronting the vasanas at a very, very subtle, subtle level. And subtle means powerful. So it's, it's, that's why it's a big, um, this, is a, this is a great warfare we are engaged in, trying to turn our attention within. Bhagavan sometimes said, uh, for example, he said in the, um, in the Puranas, they tell so many stories about the Deva Sutta Yuddha, that is the warfare between the gods and the demons. Bhagavan said this is all uh, 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 what is described there, the warfare between gods and demons, is the warfare that is going on in the heart of every spiritual aspirant, between on the one hand the Satvasana, the love to turn within, and the whole army of Vishayabhasanas that are constantly trying to pull our attention outwards. So um, the deeper we go within, the more we will the more we will have to confront these vasanas in a very subtle level. And sometimes vasanas that we were not previously aware of at all, they begin to come to the surface. Because as we as we as we um as we clear off the the, the grosser dirt, the more subtle dirt becomes uh, clear to us. If you if you've got a if you've got a if uh, supposing you've been um 
wrestling in the mud with someone, you've got a, a totally muddy, muddy T-shirt, you, you won't be able to see the subtle uh, stains. If you put it through, if you, if you wash it, you'll remove the grosser dirt, but then you'll see the subtler, the, the, the more deeply rooted uh, stains will be there. And then you have to wash it again and again and again to remove all those. So it's exactly the same with the mind. When our minds are full of so much dirt, full of so much desires and this and that, that we, 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 it doesn't even seem to us to be dirty. That the, these desires seem to be good. Yes, it's good to have desire because I want to be rich. I want to be, I want to be more learned. I want to be better than the next person. I want to climb up the greasy pole or whatever. That is, this is when the mind is very outgoing. But the more we turn within, the more the the grosser dirt gets removed from the mind, and the more subtle dirt is, it becomes visible to us. So whatever is inside, if there are anxieties, we have to face up to those anxieties. We have to, but we, the, the only way to overcome these vasanas is not to allow ourselves to be swayed by them. So when we're turning within, if we find anxiety is, is rising, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be swayed by that anxiety. To whom is this anxiety? It's to me. Let me hold on to my being. The one thing that is ever untouched by anxiety or by desire or by anything is our being. Whether we have great desire, great fear, or, or we, we are relatively free of desire and fear, the one thing that remains constant is our being. Uh, that is the desire and everything, it appears only in waking and dream. In sleep, all these desires go, but our being remains. So the more we hold on to our being, the more we separate ourselves from these things, and they lose their strength and eventually drop off. So we, we, we overcome our vasanas, not by confronting them, but just by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them, by holding on firmly to self-attentiveness, to the best of our ability. I hope that adequately answers that question. Yes, I think it does. Thank you, Michael. Um, the last question, um, it's a short one in a way. Um, it says, Michael, you once said that it's not proper to consult astrologers to know our future. However, if I remember correctly, you said that it's okay to consult them before marriage if we do so to match the horoscopes of the boy and girl. We can consult astrologers to see whether or not the boy and girl will be compatible with each other. However, this logic doesn't seem too convincing because if the boy and girl are destined to get married, <laughs> they will get married. And if they are not destined to get married, uh, th then something will prevent that marriage from happening. So why consult astrologers even before marriage? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> that is... Um... That is, astrologers cannot change our destiny. What is destined to happen is going to happen. But it is a convention in many societies, particularly in Indian societies, to, to match horoscopes. And generally, it, that, is, that is quite, a, uh, obviously it's not 100% reliable, but it, it, it's a good indication of whether two people are compatible or not. Um, so it is a part of, of the, but so why do why do you why why do people consult astrologers before marriage because everyone if you if you're entering into marriage who who wants to enter into an unhappy marriage there are so many unhappy marriages but nobody is unhappily married 
out of choice. We all, if we, if we are destined to be married, we all hope that we're going to be happily married because an unhappy marriage can be hell. But um, it, it may be our destiny to be unhappily married. But it's so from a worldly point of view. It is wise to, um, or that is the, the that is generally the belief. It is wise to look at the horoscope to see that the couple will be well suited. They'll be compatible. Obviously, it doesn't work because even when the horoscopes match perfectly, some or they seem to match perfectly, the marriages don't always work out. Um, and sometimes when the horoscopes may not seem to work ma uh, perfectly, but marriage works out very well, because ultimately, whether marriage is successful or not, it, it depends on the two people. If they, if that is, ma marriage is about love. Love is about giving. If both of them are ready to make, to give to the other, if both of them is more concerned about what can I give to the other than what can I get from the other, then it will be a happily a happy marriage, even if they're not, even if the horoscopes may not be so perfectly matched. It'll be because the love is the is the key to a to a happy marriage. Sometimes in, in many marriages, one person is ready to give, but the other person is is always about taking, taking, taking. Such marriages often don't work out very well. So many many good people end up in very unhappy marriages because the the other person is is in, is wanting more and more and more so but ultimately what whatever type of marriage we end up in or no marriage at all it's all according to destiny so ultimately um we can say even the fact that well, in Indian society, the marriages are usually arranged by the parents. So the parents, because they want what is best for their children, they will want to compare the horoscopes. So it may be your destiny, but your parents should have uh, chosen a suitable um, suitable bride or bridegroom for you by, by looking at the horoscope. That's all part of destiny. But as spiritual aspirants, we should not care about astrology at all, because um, that, that, there are two reasons why people consult astrologers. One is people want to know about the future. If we're a spiritual aspirant, we should not be concerned about the future because we know whatever happens in our life is happening by Bhagavan's grace for our good. So we shouldn't be concerned about future. The other reason people consult astrology uh, uh, horoscopes is to find out like in the case of marriage, compatibility, to find out whether, because horoscopes, so it is believed, uh, indicate something about the type of personality. So by by matching horoscopes, you get two personalities that are compatible. That is the general belief. And it, it, it seems to work in many cases, and not in all cases by any means. So um, all these things, I mean, Truly speaking, for a spiritual aspirant, we shouldn't be concerned about these things at all, because all an astrologer can say, well, see, they can say what sort of a person you are. But, <clears throat> I may be a very bad person, but I can't go to an astrologer and tell an astrologer, I want to be a good person. Can you make me a good person? The astrologer is powerless either to make us good or bad. Um, so they can't change our personality type. They also can't change our destiny. So if we're a spiritual aspirant, we should not be concerned about these things. The, the way the question was, was worded, as if, I was, as if I had said, 
um, this is permitted, that is not permitted. Who am I to say? If anyone wants to uh, consult astrologers, let them consult astrologers. There's, there's no objection to that. But if we are spiritual aspirants, we will not be inclined to consult astrologers. We will not be interested in these things. Because what we are investigating is who am I? The astrology may say what type of personality this person we take ourselves to be has, but that doesn't tell us anything about what we actually are. We, what we, we are seeking to know our own reality, so we shouldn't be so concerned about this person whom we take ourselves to be. So for, for a true spiritual aspirant, astrology will have very, the mind just won't be interested in such things, because ultimately whatever happens is happening by, by Bhagavan's grace for our own good. So what, what is going to happen in the future, who cares? He, Bhagavan is taking care of that, so it's no, no concern of ours. And about personality type, if we are to marry someone who is compatible, it will happen according to destiny. If we are to marry someone who is incompatible, it will happen according to destiny. So we really need not be concerned about these things. So if I said that uh, but comparing horoscopes for compatibility, yes, from a worldly point of view, that may be a wise thing to do. But from a spiritual point of view, we shouldn't be concerned about it at all. I hope that adequately explains. Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. It does. Yeah. It does. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. I think uh, that's all the questions for today. And thank you so yeah. much. For, uh, <laughs> it's quite an effort when you're not well to yeah. uh, do so many questions. Wow. So thank you very, very much. <laughs> Whatever strength we have is given by Bhagavan. Last time he gave me a little less strength. Today he's given me a little more strength. So it's all entirely his, you know, according to his will. Thank you, Michael. Right. Mm -hmm. I hope you'll be better very soon. Wow. It's all in his hands.